Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new episode of Deep Cups Live. I'm your host, Antoine Reed, and today we have with us George Rico from Grand Habano Cigars. He's been in the industry for quite a while, and um, you might consider him to be one of the, uh, I would say, pioneers of the boutique uh, area of the cigar industry. But um, we're going to learn more about him and his uh, time in the industry in today's uh little live chat that we're having going on here. So let me bring on our guest. George, how are you? I'm doing well. Good afternoon. How's everything? It's going well. Like I was telling people, I always refer back to this, uh, the Cigar Press cover from years ago uh, that was talking about the pioneers or kind of like the people responsible for starting the boutique cigar category and i know you were one of those people on that cover uh and this year we've had a, the pleasure of speaking to many of those people like matt booth and uh, pete johnson especially and i wanted to get to to speak to you because i know that like i said you were kind of there years ago when this whole area was still starting so i know you have some very good uh perspective i would say on the boutique area uh or uh, category within the industry. Yeah, it's been a number of years since the cover. Um, it was a great experience having uh, be sort of thought of part of that particular group uh, that, that was on that cover with a lot of the great guys that have come since then to create some unique projects uh, in the last, I don't know, it's got to be 12 years. And, uh, you know, to be consider as part of that, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. What was it like back then with the boutique being called boutique? Because today I think it has a completely different connotation uh, and people want to be boutique. You know, they, they embrace that term. Was that the same case back then when you first started? No, I mean, no, I, mean I think the term boutique uh, really became that that's niche, small market sort of product that's unique, that limited edition sort of um back then it was really more of a you know uh, smaller companies that were competing with the much bigger well-known brands that you know exited the 90s and uh were a lot bigger or maybe some were created during the late 90s that became pretty big um but you know it, it wasn't a term that was sort of thrown around much it was more of a you know small companies bigger companies and as it as it developed, you know, we sort of did take that boutique, uh, smaller production name to apply to much, much smaller brands. And, you, you know, now you have the micro boutique. Um, but really at that time, it was just honestly just smaller companies trying to survive in the cigar industry, trying to compete against the much bigger, well-known brands. And what, like, how would you define boutique today? Because I had this conversation with Matt Booth and Pete Johnson and other people. And it's just like, it's very hard, I think, to define boutique. We know what boutique might mean in outside of the cigar industry. Like you said, it's like a, maybe a smaller store that specializes in something that you can't really get at a big box store. But yeah. like, what does it mean to be boutique today in the cigar industry? Well, I think now the definition of a boutique is a much smaller brand than maybe regional um that that you know might be sort of now with 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 social media 
you do get that exposure, even though you're probably more of a regional brand uh, that developed. Um, so that really probably more on volume of cigars manufacture a year. And and if you really want to look at, okay, maybe micro boutique, more regional, nationally with social media, you can have a, a smaller brand that, that is boutique, that has that well-known name. Um, but I, I look at boutique as just probably more of a volume of cigars that are made per year. That's If I were to uh, quantify that name, that would probably be there. You know, how many cigars are you manufacturing every year as opposed to, um, I don't know, the machine made, uh, you know, or the, the hand-rolled cigars out of much bigger brands, you know, because you're talking about bigger brands that are producing, you know, between 50 to 100 million cigars a year. I mean, what really constitutes a boutique? Do you have boutique within your own portfolio or do you have boutique within as a company as a whole? So that's it's, it's still, I think, getting redefined every time. Yeah, and I just, like I said, I think it's fun um, to look at the boutique area now because that's where a lot of creativity comes from. It's like I found that uh, companies that do consider themselves boutique they don't feel or they don't come off as feeling like they're restrained or, you know, that they have to stick to the same kind of formula as everyone else. Like you see a lot of experimentation, whether it's in branding or, or blending or even how they market their cigars. And I think that they're, they are setting like the trend for bigger companies that might not want to take that risk, you know, doing something completely crazy that goes against, you know, the formula that delivers the results. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, if you look at it, you know, sort of a, what's the underground of what the culture is within the cigar industry and what's developing and how unique they are, um, I, I always find that to be very important because, I mean, I think that continues to have uh, a presence within the industry that helps it to grow. And even the bigger companies will look at what's coming up, what's uh, unique, what's different from your everyday rolling a cigar. I mean, you're using very much similar components every single time. I mean, you're using filler, binder, and wrapper. How do I make this unique enough? And that's difficult. I mean, you get into packaging, but then, you know, some of these guys are really kind of pushing uh, our industry to, to change and evolve, which is always good. I always felt, you know, the more people that come into the industry that contribute uh, will, teach the bigger companies of what's new and unique and, and you know so there is a lot of creativity there's always a, a, a different way to look at how to make cigars and I think that's phenomenal and I know too that uh, making cigars I think it was a Sebastian from Cavalier Cigars who says you know when people make cigars or work on blends it's really a, a reflection of their experiences and their journey in the industry and that really stuck with me so that's why I think everyone's cigars including yours comes out so different you know y'all might be working with the same tobacco but no cigar is going to be the same and no blend is going to be the same because you all are kind of bringing in something very unique uh to you know to the table yeah i, I think the word unique i've been blamed for using it a lot sometimes <laughs> by my wife but the reality is is that that's what makes every individual cigar brand even the bigger brands, they, they, they have their own way of making cigars that make them very, very particular. And that's always a good thing. So to backtrack a little bit, like when we talk about 
the, the journey and the expression of the journey, I guess we have to figure out where you came from before we kind of really talk about your approach to, to blending so that we understand the full story. So before we get into like how you got into the cigar industry, do you remember what your first cigar was that you ever had? Was it something premium? Was it something machine made? No, I mean, my, my, my first true cigar that I've had was a, a Lancero uh, that was made by my dad's factory, um, probably mid-90s. And uh, it was a mild Lancero that was just a very nice cigar. Uh, it struck me as interesting because it was just a different size than you normally would see from your, you know, back then, Robusto, Toro, and Torpedoes and Churchills were, that was it. Um, you know, when it comes to bigger ring gauges, and that didn't exist. So it struck me as very unique because, you know, you had Coronas, but that one thing, and, you know, so point being a, a Lancero is what I smoked my very first cigar. I think that's interesting that you started with a Lancero because, like you said, that's such an, like, unusual, nowadays, it's an unusual Vitola for a lot of companies. Like, why is that? Is it, because I know some people said it was, it's kind of more difficult to create a Lancero than it is, like you said, a Robusto or uh, a different other size of a cigar. Is that the case? Why like Lanceros are so rare in the industry? Well, I mean, overall, you'll see a lot of Lanceros. There's a lot of manufacturers that say they like Lanceros. Um, Lanceros predominantly are very difficult to make and it has to be a very skilled, knowledgeable uh, roller. And there's a lot of factors that contribute to a Lancero being a pleasant experience as opposed to, you know, a bad experience. And so, you know, you have materials that could uh, affect the draw. You have heat, you know. So if you're if you're having a very skilled, knowledgeable roller, um, that's a cigar that's a very pleasant uh, cigar to smoke. But, you know, it is a hard cigar to make. You know, a lot of the consumers maybe are not attracted to something so delicately looking. They look more for like a value or a traditional size, so you don't see a lot of them. But you, you see a lot of companies with Lanceros out there. You know, one of the things I kind of learned, I would say later on in my time in the industry, is that different Vitolas or different sizes of cigars, it could be the same blend that you might use, but it's a completely different smoking experience for uh you know, for the consumer or whoever's smoking that cigar. And that's something, like I said, when I say recently, I mean, with, probably within the last year that that kind of struck because, you know, for me, I'm not a person that smokes cigars every single day, but, you know, I never think about it. It's not like I go through like someone's portfolio and say, I'm going to smoke their Lancero today, their, you know, Robusto another day. So I don't have that comparison, but I just know, you know, a couple weekends ago, I was, I tried my first Lancero and then, you know, you kind of look at it, you go, oh, this isn't going to be any different. And it was a different experience, you know, and I made me wonder, you know, like maybe I should go back and try the, a different, that same blend, but in a different size. So like why, and I'm sure you, I've heard you talk about blending in other people's interviews. So I know you're the expert at this, yeah. but you just tell people like why, you know that experience is different you know you how you can have the same blend same you know tobacco makeup in a cigar but depending on the size they can get a completely different you know experience when they're using that yeah or that, using that product 
Well, I mean, it, it really comes down to the shape. I mean, depending on the materials that you're using, the shape uh, does alter. I mean, even box pressing a cigar could alter the way the materials sit within each other. So when you're burning, they'll burn differently at, at one point and then creating a different experience. I mean, the same blend box press to a round is a totally different. Um, I think as, uh, as a consumer, uh, one of the things that would be a factor is how much you draw the cigar, which heat tends to affect if it's going to steam the materials before you get to them. So that's one factor that, that, that would change just the blend, you know, going from a Corona to a Robusto. Uh, the percentages, I mean, you're utilizing a, in a small ring gauge, a binder and wrapper, you know, Corona, which is a 42, 44, and then you're going to a Robusto, you're pretty much almost about the same amount of materials within the wrapper and the binder. The fillers will, will alter. And, you know, the right cigar manufacturer and blender will try to maintain the blend but you'll see that, you know, ultimately the flavor of the cigar, how it burns and the materials that you utilize could alter the, the, the experience. Maintaining the same blend percentages of filler, wrapper, binder. So I, I think you'll find that a blend that, uh, you know, and the goal for a cigar manufacturer is that every cigar that you pick on one brand is always going to smoke the same. That's the secret, really. I mean, you got to balance it out. Um, but even that being the case you could have a, a slight change depending on what you eat what you drink how, how fast you smoke the cigar and you know the humidity the, the heat so a lot of these factors do affect how a blend goes from one size to the other uh, construction wise the goal as a manufacturer as a, a cigar blender is always to maintain the blend in different sizes but they will change sometimes depending on the maker it could be, you know, it is a handmade cigar, so a different roller, different table, just that one little piece more of a filler could affect it. So it's a, a lot of different variables, but overall, yeah, I mean, you know, you'll taste the flavors in a Corona probably a little bit different than a Reduce on a particular blend. Yeah, I was going to ask you, for someone who is, I know people smoke cigars for different reasons. You know, some people smoke it just to relax. They don't care about, you know, figuring out the makeup of the blend and the flavor profile and all that stuff. And there's other people maybe, you know, who want to get really deep into the process and they want to, you know, identify all the flavor notes. They want to, you know, talk about the aroma. They want to talk about the, the tobacco makeup of that cigar, you know, but those two, those are two the completely different experiences that you're kind of going into it. So is there a particular, size of cigar that's better for if you really do want to you know get the flavor profile or experience that flavor profile is there one that you kind of recommend people kind of pick up or a size um, well i mean to me a size that is kind of in the middle that sort of goes to a small ring gauge but going towards you know maybe a, a more traditional and even bigger ring gauge is corona gorda's where i blend i, I blend in 46 ring gauge cigars um, the reason is my favorite size currently in the last probably 10 years as opposed to Lanceros. I love Lanceros. I just don't have the time for them. So that's a cigar that I'll pick and, you know, really give it its time. Um, but I think it's really difficult to blend in that particular ring gauge because you're really sort of fitting. You're trying to fit a, uh, a lot of different components within that small ring gauge. That's one size that really always draws my attention. I've always loved. I think it's a very, you know, it's not that far from a Churchill. Uh, which a traditional Churchill was 47, now it's a 48. 
but now you even find Churchill's 50 and 52. So, I mean, you know, the landscape has changed from the last 20 years. Um, when you get into the particular blends, um, you know, the wrapper that you're going to smoke with, you know, but I think that's one size that if you're going to smoke anybody's cigar, you know, that would be a good ring, uh, a good ring gauge to start with. I think that's a really nice, and then go from there, go up or down and find what you like. I mean, a lot of people like bigger ring gauges because there's more air, more draw, get to taste more of the tobacco, but that does affect how much filler you're getting into that blend as opposed to the binder and the wrapper. So it's a little bit different. The 46 ring gauge, I recommend it. Okay. Um, now, when I know that a lot of people kind of come into this industry in different ways, and there's some people who, you know, like you, who had fathers or grandfathers or even earlier generations working in tobacco. So it just seemed like a natural progression that they would get into the industry. And there's other people who kind of are first generation who got into the industry. I know you said that you were working with your father, but working with your father doesn't always mean that you would automatically say like, yeah, I want to get into this industry. Um, so yeah. for you, <laughs> yeah. So for you, did you always kind of think when you were younger, like, yeah, this is the industry I want to work in or that it kind of was like a, a roundabout way that you kind of found yourself, uh, you know, getting involved in the industry? Well, I don't know. I think kind of one of the things was that I've been sort of a very creative person my whole life. And it was like a good medium for me to come in and, and you know, sort of uh, be focused on creating different things. Uh, been around it from a very young age. It's sort of everything I, I, I sort of knew. Um, so, uh, and then as I got to learn it, I really fell in love with it. So it's not something that like uh, it was forced on me. Um, it was more of a, you know, it was the mid nineties, a cigar boom. So it was all, all around culturally. So it was also something really cool and unique. Um, so I felt that it, I just, you know, I just thought it was always a really cool thing to do. Um, so being part of it and then learning really the details of how to make a cigar. I mean, everything from fermentation to rolling cigars. There's so much to learn that it's someone like me that is always looking for, if you ever have a conversation with me, it's always, you know, I throw 50 questions at once. <laughs> you know, I don't get an answer to the first one and I'm already asking another. And so it was, it was, for me, it was something that I could really dive into and be creative and ask questions and just keep growing. And that was kind of one of the things that for me personally, was exciting and made me fall in love with it even more every time. And, you know, after 20 something years of doing it, it's, there's always something new to learn. And I, I loved it. What was like one thing when you first started in the industry that you had to learn that was kind of hard for you to kind of grasp or it took a while for you to kind of really kind of understand? Hmm. I'm thinking, you know, when you ask me that question, I probably more the business side of it. Uh, you know, that was really the hardest thing for me to, uh, you know, because uh, uh, growing up in it, you know, you, you're kind of exposed to how to, uh, you know, look at a balloon, how to look at the leaves, how to, you know, the rolling process of it. So that I sort of understood. But when it came to really taking the reins of the company and understanding the business side, that was the more the most difficult thing for me, probably. Uh, a lot of mistakes were done on my end to really understand how the industry as a business sort of uh, works. And that was probably the most difficult thing. 
like what about the business side of it like was it the distribution part of it was it yeah yeah the the distribution side of it i'm sorry go ahead i said or was it like a little bit of everything was it just like getting in there and saying "Ooh, i didn't you know it looks kind of different from you know from the outside but until you're it's like on your desk trying to you know looking back at you you know this is a problem you need to figure out well really understanding uh, because when i came in it was it was a cigar boom i think if you had cigars you could sell to anyone but then you know i I, as i started to really get more into it it's 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 really selling a product that people will want uh, as opposed to having a product that or or i should say more people were looking for at that point in time because they they became more critical of what they were looking for and so it was a lot more difficult and then the distribution side of it the marketing side of it uh, the understanding um, uh, of how each regional retailer kind of works, what the consumers are looking for. That was that was probably the most difficult part of it, traveling around the country, spending 20 years really understanding it. Sometimes I still don't get it uh, because there's, there's so many different factors. I mean, social media, the last 15 years, has sort of developed the industry to be totally different, right? And many different industries, but this one in particular has grown because of it as well. So that aspect of running the business, understanding how to bring a product to market, um, the creative side, you know, I, I could create 20 different projects, but you could only release one. And so that was that was the easiest part for me, actually, because I really understood the materials, uh, the way a cigar is built, the, the construction, how the, the materials interact. So that was the fun part for me. It was more taking the, the, that particular product and making it successful. And so distributing a brand and, and, and continuing to have it in the industry uh, after many years, that was, that was always, you know, the hardest part at first. So when did you decide that you wanted to launch your own brand? Well, when we launched Grand Abonos in 2001, early 2002, um, it was a culmination of us really being in the business, but making cigars for other companies. Uh, we were more of a, what you call a private label cigar factory. And mm-hmm. for a lot of years we were looking to, but I was in school, I'm still learning. So it was not, it was not the right time. And when I came into the industry to work with my father full time, I really understood the business side uh, enough to, okay, now we need to look at making our own cigar and and that was always a goal for my father to be able to make a cigar uh, we you know we had smaller brands uh short filler cigars that we sold locally here in miami for the cafeterias for you know the 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 the, the short filler long filler depending on that particular market always existed and so for us it was more about how do we take it nationally and and that was the initial of like okay we need to create a brand and what that brand is going to be that was you know late 90s early 2000 so like how did you get started like was it with the name had to come first or was it like did you already have product in mind or like a blend in mind that you kind of wanted to release so the original release was my father's blends you know and and they're still in the marketplace i mean the the connecticut number one the people knows the albano number three our corojo our corojo maduro those are blends that we were already selling um, and we just felt that they were 
great cigars. I mean, we, we made a living initially doing those brands, those blends. And then we just felt that the name was what we needed. Uh, the packaging was what I created mm -hmm. afterwards. So all the little details in, in creating a brand was we already had a product. We were already selling it. How do we sort of name it, brand it to take it to market? And that was that was that was probably the hardest thing because with selecting a name at that time, um, you know, you're talking about still late '90s. Everybody was still looking at what the Cubans were doing, um, as opposed to now, the Cubans and the rest of the world are looking at what the American market's doing, right? So there was an association uh, with creating a great cigar, and I, we thought that the name should fit at that time that particular and that's what became our name right so to, which, which I mean, means that to, to to anyone it really sort of means that it's become in the lexicon more of a the great cigar if you really want to look at a translation in spanish the habano is it's a cigar really at this point in time and we 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 coined the name more the great cigar that's what we wanted to call it so I was about to ask, like, what does the name mean to you? Because I know a lot of people have different interpretations. So, uh, mm -hmm. and I think it was probably easier back then. I was speaking to someone today about coming up with, you know, a name for your business and branding. And I'll say it's so hard to do that now because there's so many companies <laughs> out there and you have to look at the trademarks and make sure you're not trying to copy someone. And it's like so many names are taken. So you kind of did it at a good time because I, I think that then it was maybe probably wasn't easy, but it was probably easier than it would be like now trying to come in because I, I see so many in different industries, but now it's even in the tobacco industry. You see so many lawsuits over names and trademarks and it's just crazy yeah. how easy it is. You may need, mean absolutely no harm uh, in, in doing it and you may not think about it and then you could easily, you know, release something and, and, and somebody's like, that's, too similar to our name, like like that infringes on our trademark or or yeah. something, and it's so hard. Yeah, uh, it is hard. I mean, I always tell anyone that's starting out that that that's going through. I was actually having that conversation prior to the podcast, and I mean, you know, when it comes to things like that, is there's still such a small industry. It's still, I mean, you know, there there is a great culture within our industry. Everybody knows each other. I mean, for the most part, a conversation, a phone call will fix any issue. And go in that direction. I think, you know, people are creative enough to be able to change their names. It's unfortunate. I mean, at one point in time, you have to defend what's yours. And I understand that there's a lot of heart, sweat, and tears have gone into creating something that someone's going to sort of piggyback on. So I understand that. But sometimes, you know, a conversation will fix anything. You know, we have somebody who's been watching the show from the beginning, uh, Marshall, and he had a, a question for you. He says, uh, do you identify your brand as a premium or a boutique brand? <laughs> well, the thing about it is, is that I, I, I sort of, based on volume wise, I, I do consider our, our brand to be still boutique. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in essence, maybe I've done a very good job at marketing the brand and created it and globally people recognize it. Uh, but we're still, uh, you know, relatively compared to other companies, it's still a small focus on more quality and production and numbers as opposed to sort of a, a brand that's maybe a thousand boxes a year. I, I don't know. I'm just saying, you know, number. But that being said, um, when we look at what premiums is, it's a different word in the terminology that I use because a premium cigar is a hand rolled long filler cigar as opposed to, you know, as an example, a, a sandwich or a short filler. 
So that's the premium side of it. But even in our portfolio, we have core brands, premium, and now we have ultra premiums. So it all depends on how you sort of define it. I mean, you know, it's kind of one of the things in our industry that the standards of naming things has been blurred because the Churchill was very traditional. Corona was very traditional. Now people are naming, you know, the great whale seven by 70. And, you know, so it's a little bit different. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I still think that we're considered a boutique brand in essence, comparable to other companies. Uh, and do we make premium cigars? Yes, we do. Well, I think that's, I always feel the same way when I'm speaking to different brand owners. It's like, I think everyone in theory makes a premium cigar, but when you look at the size of your company, maybe how much cigar or product you produce, it may be a more boutique mentality. And instead of like a, a grand, you know, you're going to mass produce a whole bunch of product. Um, yeah. So I think yeah, everyone... Even even with within my portfolio, I mean, my catalog really comes down to, I mean, the Zulus, anything on the STK lines is, is, is if you were going to separate that and create a company and a company on its own, we only make about 500 boxes a month of some of our products that we make. Zulus, I think we only make 500 boxes. Uh, the Black Dolly as well. Uh, the Reservals is uh, really small amounts of it. So it all depends on how each company looks at it. Um, I don't like to define it sometimes because my boutique to to maybe General's boutiques on some of their products is boutique to them. So, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's all depending on how the consumer maybe coins it, I guess it would be the right way to go. Like I, said, I always go back to um, an interview I did with Rafael Nadal uh, a year or two ago. And he was saying that boutique is can be more of an attitude that you kind of take rather than it being like a, you know, descriptor for a whole category of product. He's like, you know, boutique is this just a different mentality that you might have to have just that sets your product apart from someone else. So it yeah, can be many. I, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, like I said, I mean, not, not, not to beat on their horse, but I guess you could look at it as a marketing uh, ploy as well, depending on who the companies are. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying anybody's wrong, but you mm -hmm. know, it also kind of has that appeal of, interesting to that particular smaller group online and then getting them to try the cigars. I feel that a cigar at the end of the day has to represent itself. The work of the, the, the blender and the quality of the cigar represents itself. And if it's, you know, it's a 20 million cigar production to a, you know, 20,000 cigar production, it all really comes down to the quality of the cigar. That's what really sell it. That's what's going to sell and make a cigar what it is. Now, what was the first blend that you worked on just completely that was like your own blend, your own take on the, you know, on the category? So um, the first blend that I worked on uh, was a product that I developed uh, back in 05 that was called the VL, very limited. Um, so that was the first Granabano extension or new brand from Granabano's at the time. So the Granabano VL, then we came out with an Azteca. So anything after that, I, I, I sort of blended and developed. Uh, everything that you see out there now is the, like I said, the, the Black Dahlia, the, the, the Blue and Green, the, uh, the, uh, geez, the 20th anniversary now this year that we're releasing, um, and, and the Persian Kings, all those different I, I, I had a hand on. So that was sort of the, the first big blend that I worked on. Uh, 
or brand that I'd release nationally. But the first true blend that I worked on was a Lancero, which I would carry for years handing out to people and it was what became the Zulu Zulu. Uh, and that was why I was, you know, I was very uh, focused on smoking Lanceros for a long period of time and I would hand them out from a bundle and eventually it became a brand, which is the Zulu Zulu Connecticut and then the Habano afterwards. But that was the true first blend that I ever worked on, my first true blend. Is that the one that has the most significance to you or is that another one in your portfolio? I think it is the most significant because it's sort of a project that I, you know, I, I've changed throughout the years. I, I sort of always try to attach it to a message. Uh, you know, the first one was very unique because, you know, it, it brought out a message that had some street art on it. And it's, it's, it sort of was my first blend that I worked on that I thought it was unique and different. And when people smoked it, they really liked it. Um, so ultimately, at the end of the day, if I was at a firing squad and I only had one cigar, that would be the one I want. <laughs> um, how important is it for your products to have a story behind it? Huge, huge. I mean, for me, every and, you know, a lot of the, I, I think actually ultimately all the cigars that I make have a story behind them. Maybe we don't I don't market it. Uh, market them well to tell people the story but every cigar that i make has a story behind um and you'll see that in the name of the cigar sizes um or the the theme of the cigar so i it's it's really what gives the project life right i mean i can make a blend of a cigar name it something but when it's created because it has a backstory that's always the best way to do it um and it's not for marketing purposes, I just think it gives it another dimension to what the product really is. And to me, it's like if that one person gets it, then they'll understand. And so that's what I try to do. You know, I see a lot more people in the kind of the boutique area of the industry that really embrace, like I said, that product um, story thing. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the other side, which is, you know, you put out a product and you kind of go more in descriptor details of what the tobacco is, you know, what year is it from and such like that. Cause I think there's an appeal to a lot of people out there who smoke cigars who are highly interested in what tobacco is in there. Um, especially with uh, comparing that to some, you know, when you get information about cigar and it says un undisclosed, undisclosed, uh, you can hear that sometimes. Um, but you know, I really like when brands do have a story because I feel like people connect more to that brand and that person behind it. And it kind of makes you sometimes go, you know, even if it's something, you know, like, wow, I never knew that about them or they made this for their father or they made it inspired by this trip that they took here. To me, that makes it a little yeah. bit more interesting for you to actually and gives you a little bit more incentive to just go out there and try it other than it being just another product that's that's come out yeah no i agree 100 percent. i mean i think every every product that i've ever developed has a genesis in a particular uh situation or an instance i mean you know blue and green was based on a song uh you know it's it's just a moment in time where you're creative of what your next project is going to be what materials you're going to use but then what's going to breathe you know life into it and and it always helps to, for me, it, it always helps to have that extra thing of like, how am I going to, and additionally, give it that 
that life that it needs to keep it going as a project. So that's that's where you know, I really try to focus as much as possible on that. So what's the story behind Black Dahlia? Because if you do a search on Grand Habana, I think that cigar in particular comes up a lot. So what's the story behind that particular release? <laughs> well, the SCK project was uh, with the Black Dahlia is, uh, you know, it's not really more focused on a, um, because a lot of people will probably attach it to the murder, uh, you know, and, and, it's, and it's not. I mean, if you really focus on the band, it's really more a dedication on that flower. <laughs> so, you know, I, I do have an affinity for the flower and uh, how beautiful they are and how unique it is and how, uh, you know, delicate and, there's there's some more stories to it, but I, I think if that's that is is on the the image of its uh, of the band. So there's a lot of different things that go onto the band that I put there on purpose to be able to showcase um, what that is. I mean, the next project that's coming out, it's all based on designing a band around a Greek face, <laughs> you know. So telling a story through. A, It's just unique in that sense. Yeah, and I see that based on your shirt and based on the Grand Habana poster that's behind you, like you're not afraid to use color and it's not no. traditional cigar industry color. Um, because I always noticed like when I first started working in the media side of the cigar industry, I was a graphic designer. So I would see all the, I was uh, doing design work for some magazines and I would see the ads come in and it was like, oh, look, black and gold <laughs> or you know oh look you know maroon and and brown and you know, sometimes i would be designing something and i would say like why, why don't we use this like hot pink or something they're like absolutely not like that's not a art <laughs> industry color and well, so like like how do you feel about breaking those stereotypes because i'm sure that there's some people who look at you and look at some of the the colors and like you said the, the use of flap the you know flowers and they might say you know, Black Dahlia, like, you know, like, they, like I said, they, they go to the murder thing and they don't go to just the flower floral thing. And then they, yeah. they probably tell them, sorry to disappoint you, but it's not inspired by the murder stuff. It's it's, a, it's inspired by the flower. And they're like, that's not like cigar industry standard. Like, so, so how do you kind of break through that, that those stereotypes? And well, not other I gotta opinion? be honest, I've, I've never been someone to has ever worried about what people think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I realize that everybody's unique and different. And I, I think, you know, having walked into the first cigar store uh, when I was a kid, it just all seemed so dull. You know, it was just wood. I mean, the cigar bands, you know, I've always been a, a big fan of like the, the, the artwork that was done in Cuba with the stones and all these things. And I thought it was very unique of the colors of the bands. But then we go into boxes and they just essentially, you know, put like these wooden boxes in it. And it was, it was what traditionally was. And I always felt like it was just a canvas to like really decorate a cigar. And so I never, I, I you know, maybe people would think it's gimmicky. Um, it's not no longer the case. When I first started, I mean, my boxes were green, black, and red. I mean, you know, they really stood out and now it's become the norm. You walk into a cigar humidor anywhere and it's no longer that case where it's just not that dark, dull, 
black and brown. So I never, I think it's, why not have fun with it, you know? Um, at the end of the day, yeah, it is marketing for some people to appeal, and, but I love colors. I mean, you know, the way to be able to present a cigar in a different light in the packaging, I mean, I think it stands as artwork as it, on its own, you know? So um, it's just, I, I really think that, you know, if you like traditional, that's great. But you should always push, push it, just push it a little bit more. I mean, you know, some might say it's kind of stupid to name a cigar after a flower, but I think it's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> I think you're speaking to something that doesn't get spoken of a lot in the industry, which is that, you know, the advantage of being creative and thinking outside the literal box sometimes. Um, you know, we, a lot of companies, I was saying this a couple of days ago, like when I first started working in the industry, the, the word of the day was innovative. Like every company would say, we're innovative, we're innovative, we're innovative. And it was like, how? And they couldn't answer the how part. They were just like, you know, I don't know, but it's just how our process is. Like we're innovative, like our products are innovative. And now you don't hear that as much. And now, but you also don't hear people saying like, you know, we're creative, we're creative. Because I think it's, again, it goes back to maybe that inability to answer how are you creative you know like how because creativity is so hard sometimes i think for some people to do because for some people being creative means imitating people and like is that really being you know creative or is it just you know trying to kind of build off of what somebody else puts out there yeah i mean you know at the end of the day being creative it's kind of it's 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 and it's it's getting more difficult I think that's maybe why you're seeing so many products out there that are sometimes they lose the message. I mean, I've seen a couple of cigar brands that I think uh, I wouldn't go in that direction with like uh, I don't know, chocolate bars and things of that nature, just because of, you know, I guess legislation and all those other things. But, uh, you know, one thing, I guess that's being creative. So who's to say that it's wrong, I guess. Yeah, I'm not wrong. No one's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, but is there anything in the industry that really kind of, I won't say get on, gets on your nerves, but like that kind of irks you a little bit, like when you see it happening and you, of course you don't have to say any particular brand names, but like when you look at it and you go, please stop doing this. Like, like, er, like for me, it's always like ratings because I know people love cigar ratings, but when I see a rating, I, I, I can never find like how they got, how they got to that, you know, that rating. I think the problem with ratings is that they're subjective. You know, I guess everybody has a different palate and it's difficult. I guess it just creates a standard. And I guess the people that are giving that rating have, I guess they've done a good enough job to be able to have their ratings represented and be the standard. Mm -hmm. That being said, you know, I don't, I don't know that anything kind of really kind of bothers me. Um, in regards to what people are doing, I think I'm one of those that the more people do things, the better it is for the industry. And, you know, there's a lot of things that there's a lot of people that are very creative and I could see in their work when it shows, but there's a lot of people that just do things cause they're told to do it. And, you know, there's, unfortunately, sometimes it's just very traditional. I, I do people do like traditional, I guess. I guess the way to look at it is traditional with 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 modern. I guess I don't know what the contemporary part of this is right now, because everyone's kind of in one, pulling in everywhere. So I just don't know. 
we'll find out, I guess, 20 years from now, right? <laughs> um, well, tell us about this. I know we, you know, last month at this kind of, well, a little bit over a month ago now at this time, we were all at PCA trade show. You know, it was a big show for a lot of people. I, I heard positive things from most people about the show. Um, and you introduced a, a, a cigar to kind of celebrate a big anniversary. So kind of yeah. tell us about that cigar and kind of like, again, what's the story behind, you know, this cigar? Well, you know, being in the industry and surviving 20 years as a cigar brand is a big accomplishment because I've seen a lot of people come and go. I mean, I've been mm -hmm. to the trade show and seen the 50 people with a dream, um, you know, and they want to, everyone has a particular reason why they want to have a cigar. Um, ours as, as a family is the tradition side of it. And it's something that we made a living and fed our family and worked hard to maintain and focus on because it's, it's, it's our trade. Um, so I respect it in that sense. Um, to, to celebrate 20 years is an accomplishment that I think not a lot of people, even big at the time, that are not no longer around had managed to accomplish. So I, I really wanted to celebrate that. I, I thought it was uh, a very important moment in our time. And, and you know, if the Grand Bonnells is not here in five years, I, I hope that, you know, that, that, that was a good run, right? Um, so I wanted to celebrate as a very important the cigar uh, blend, I think, is very traditional, uh, but very floral, very unique. Um, there's a word again to the flavors that I'm trying to with the materials that I was trying to use, you know, focusing on on using different countries, as I've always done with my blends. And then the, the story behind it is really the name of the sizes. Once again, I mean, you know, it starts with my Robusto. I named it El Sueño. It's the dream. Um, you know, and then you have the Toro, which is El Desafio. El Desafio in Spanish is, is that the, the battle, that, that, that ordeal that you go through. Um, and then to celebrate 20th year, you know, it's a triumph. And then that's why my, my 6 by 60 is called El Triunfo. And, and that's a story that really goes behind that particular project. I think it's kind of a unique cigar that has very... Uh, floral notes with a lot of depth with a lot of flavor which is what i try to impart with a lot of my blends and the story is just really having having it made 20 years uh, as a family business to survive you know many a time maybe not being able to, uh, are we going to stay in business are we doing well the mistakes that you've done as a as a cigar maker can you overcome them um working with family is not it's not the easiest thing um, and, and as a team collectively accomplishing that, I think that's something worth celebrating. And I think our 20th year was, was something that I really needed to do it. Now, unfortunately, it should have been last year, um, but because of COVID, I, I delayed it in order to get to the release. So that, that, was, that was the one thing. Um, you know, like you said, being in the industry that long, I always say being in the industry even a year is like a major accomplishment. <laughs> There's yeah. some people kind of, I mean, it's just, they don't understand like the work that goes into it and the many different moving parts. So multiplying that by 20 is a humongous accomplishment. So like when you're, you know, you would think that that alone should be a, a big selling point, I would think for your brand, especially when you put that into the context of regulations 
you know, people want always want to know, are you going to be around? Well, it's like you have, you know, some of your products are grandfathered in by the FDA. So you don't have to worry about, you know, that aspect, which again, makes it appealing. But yeah. when it, when it comes to you dealing with some of the retailers, do you still find that you have to sell just as hard now as you did, you know, 20 years ago when you were just starting? Sometimes I think harder <laughs> and, and I understand it. I mean, you know, um, I guess the appeal of a brand that's old and and has maintained is sometimes something that it's very unique and different. But for us, is having been able to accomplish that has been the consistency of how we make our cigars. Uh, mm -hmm. That the consumer 20 years ago is still picking the same cigar 20 years later with the same blend that the, and they're going to remember. And it's a particular flavor that we carry with our brands. Granite Bottle has a very unique flavor. Um, that's that's something that that's worth. But, you know, that being said, there's a lot of new retailers that come in. Um, you know, I don't like to say the fact, but there's a lot of hobbyist retailers, unfortunately, that you can tell who are the retailers you know, who are not. And sometimes it's difficult uh, to deal. So um, the retailers that were around maybe 15, 20 years ago or the old guard. I mean, you still have a lot of those guys, but there's a lot of people that have gone. So they understood they were seasoned. They knew how to market a cigar. They knew how to sell cigars. And then, you know, the evolution of online, you know, social media, a lot of those things have made it, I think, a lot more difficult to sell a cigar. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot more difficult to stay in business at that point in time. Uh, and I, I think that's probably a reflection of not being able to see brands unless they have something that's really good stay in the marketplace longer than two years. Yeah. And I was going to ask off of that, like when you, especially coming off of a trade show, um, what are retailers asking for now? Like what are they looking for in terms of like, you know, onboarding you as a, as a brand that they were going to carry in their store. Cause I think a lot of people don't, you know, when, when you think of stores and retail, you, you automatically go big box. So you think target and Walmart, yeah. you know, who has ample space, you know, and yet a cigar store is like a fraction, like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of that size. Yeah. And the, the humidor may look huge, but, you know, I was speaking to somebody else about this, but, you know, there's some brands that tell people like, you, can, you know, you got to bring in this many facings of the cigar and that takes up, you know, a good chunk of that humidor. And then they have like only so much space. So yeah. I know that they're looking for different things. So like what are, you know, from what you've heard, like what are the retailers like looking for now in terms of like deciding whether or not they're going to bring in your product? Well, I think I think it's always been the case, but and, you know, there's there's two two things that retailers look for: what's new, different, unique that my customers are going to appreciate. Um, that's one segment. But you know, as a whole, if I was a retailer, I would look for companies like my. And you know, it's not because I I run a company that sells cigars, but I would look for the infrastructure behind the company. Mm -hmm. um, that's really the, the, you have to understand that you know, behind me. There's hundreds of people uh, and there, there's a big infrastructure between farms and factory and curing barns and distribution, uh, selling, uh, you know, all those things are what I would think a retailer would want uh, in order to have that sort of long, that, that view that they're going to have a product that they're going to be able to get behind. That's what I would always hope that retailers look for. And then you do get into the what's new, what's, uh, 
you know, maybe price point, depending on their customer base. So there's always been those same questions. Um, but, you know, you, you have the, 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 the two that are always sort of interfering or crossing where what's unique and what's new, but what can I have that people understand and know and will continue to buy? And can I continue to buy that product if I get behind it years later from now? So that's, that's, if I was a retailer, that's what I would be doing. Uh, and to go off of that, you see a lot of brands kind of using price to like set themselves apart from different brands or in the humidor and such, you know, that you have one end of the spectrum where it's like, you know, they can offer that cigar product under $8 or something like that. And it's a premium product. And they say, you know, this is great quality. It's as premium as ever. And then you have other brands that go, you know, above, I would say like the $30 mark, the $40 mark, sometimes the $50 mark. And it's just, and you know, they argue the same thing. So like, what's your view of, of pricing and how should, how should consumers especially kind of look at pricing? Cause sometimes I know sometimes a novice cigar smoker might think the higher the price point, the better the, the cigar. And that's yeah. not always the case. Well, yeah, you know, that's, that's one of those things that it's difficult and I, and I don't want to knock anybody on, on either or, right? There's a lot of great cigars at 7 to $8, just like there's a lot of great cigars from 12 to 15 And then you get into cigars that are, you know, 25 to 30 50 I don't know, I've heard 100 So at that point in time, it's really kind of, if I was to, which is what I do, to charge based on its how long the tobaccos have been aged, the, the rarity of the materials, and that's sort of where I guide myself in regards to our pricing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the packaging, the, the, the cost, the distribution, all those things, that's a business. I look at it that way. Um, just to create a cigar that's $15 or $30, what makes that any different? But, you know, like my cigars, I mean, I always felt that Consumers have always undervalued it because I've always tried to be competitive with price point. And because, of course, you know, as a business, you try to be where the masses are. And, you know, of course, but I, I do think it's a $12, $15 cigar. It's just you'll find it in that price point because, uh, you know, we do run a business and farms and everything that goes behind that you have to support. So um, are you going to sell a million $15 cigars or are you going to sell to million eight dollar cigars so that's it all I, I, as a business and i'm talking more as a business sense of it mm -hmm. so um if i were to say to a consumer just do you buy what you like if you can if you find what you like if it's a two dollar cigar man keep smoking it's what makes you happy um are they great cigars at 15 yes are they great cigars at eight yes uh, but it all depends on what you like and that's what i would tell anyone Awesome. I'm always curious about that because, you know, on Instagram and amongst friends, there's always a discussion about pricing and people always say, well, why are these prices getting out of control? And like they're going up and like the quality isn't really, you know, changing. It's just in sometimes in some cases with the pandemic, unfortunately, you know, some of the, the there are some quality control issues, which I can understand because yeah. some of the factories were losing, you know, workers or didn't have the same capacity yet. They were trying to keep up with the demand at, you know, shockingly, you know, the skyrocketed. So yeah. uh, I think price was always kind of, you know, 
something that a lot of people was just wondered about. So it's nice yeah. to get your on it as a brand owner. Yeah. And, you know, the only thing I would have to say is that, you know, depending on the companies and the brands, um, things are getting very difficult. As a cigar, mm -hmm. a cigar maker, I, I see it. The cost of making a cigar is it's, it's going up and up and up. And, you know, the labor, I mean, Nicaragua is an example, is a perfect example of a country that's losing people. Uh, I mean, you know, to go south or to go north and the majority are coming here and you're, you know, uh, for whatever the reason may be, you know, politically, instability, crime, uh, you know, all these things that are factors. And those create a lot of additional cost. Uh, I mean, I could see maybe where you have some costs going up, you know, hopefully it, it maintains, but there's always there, there's always that that fear currently, right? Because we're, we're dealing post-COVID, right? All right. the, the gluts of inventory are developing, so maybe things will go down. Um, you know, we just don't know. Um, right. The, you know, I've been looking for a bicycle for two years and then now the prices <laughs> have gone down. So because now there's inventory. So you just don't know. I mean, you know, it's all the supply and demand, unfortunately. Um, as we kind of wrap up the show, there's always two questions I like to end with. One of those questions being what's your why or what motivates you to do what you do? Well, to me, it's the passion I have for, for cigar making. I mean, it's not a job to to say that I wake up every day and I dread coming to work. I don't. It's a dream to me because I see it's 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 what I live for and it's to make cigars. But at the end of the day, that question was posed to me when I first was going to, you know, have my sales force come on board. And then one question that came to me that has always stuck with me. As uh, they asked me, why would you sell cigars? Why would you want to sell your cigar? Why? And I, and I always answer that, and I will always will, and it's for that moment in time when that customer is smoking that cigar, and I'm part of that experience. Uh, that happy wedding, that fish you caught, that's what makes me make cigars. That's why I do it. Awesome. And the, the last question is uh, someone has an idea for a business. It might not necessarily be a cigar or tobacco related business, but they have an idea for a business. They want to get started and they come to you and they say, George, I know that you did it. Um, so obviously, you know what you're doing. So what advice do you have for that person to kind of get started in launching their own business or just in general becoming an entrepreneur? Yeah, I would have to tell you that whatever business you're going to do is you have to learn your trade. That's number one. You have to learn what you're doing. You have to be passionate about it. You have to understand what it is to make. If it's a product or service, really give people your best 100%. And that's going to translate into being successful. Um, it's, it's knowing your trade really understanding what it is that you do. Awesome. Well, how can people follow you and follow Grand Habano Cigars? I know there's going to be people who are watching this video, so they've seen the banner that's been up most of the episode, but there's Which also... I appreciate, yeah. And there's going to be people who are just listening to this on some of the podcasting platforms. So can you just tell people what how they can kind of keep up with you and keep up with... Sure. Uh, 
So you um, can follow company. us on our, our webpage is uh, ghcigars.com. You could also at Granabano Cigars on Instagram. Personally, you could follow me at Gar Cigars on Instagram uh, and also on Facebook. Uh, Gar Cigars, G-A-R Cigars. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and spending a good hour just talking about you and your experiences in the business. Like I said, uh, you're someone that I've always seen at the trade shows. I think last time I saw you at the trade show, I stopped in your booth, like maybe the 2019 trade show before everything kind of went crazy with COVID. Uh, yes. So um, that was a while back. So, but we've never had time to really sit down and talk because you're always Luckily, your trade show booth is always busy and you always have people coming <laughs> in and waiting to come in. Yes. So uh, I always like like this little format of being able to kind of chat and kind of learn more about you and your brand. So hopefully people watching and listening either live or uh, in playback mode uh, will learn a lot more about Grand Habana. And when they see your products in the store, they'll want to give it a try because they know that there's a story behind it and it's not just another product. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on board. I, I had a great time. Actually, it was a learning experience being in uh, on the show. The questions he asked are, you know, poised really good, intricate things in my head that now I have to go and analyze once again. So um, it's always good to question why. And I appreciate mm -hmm. it. Thanks for the time. And I, um, no I'm problem. glad and hopefully we get to see each other in person next time and I will continue the conversation. Yeah, definitely. Um, for anybody watching on Facebook, YouTube or Twitter, just make sure you uh, hit that like button or subscribe button to be notified of any time we have new shows. We have at least one a week. Um, some weeks we have more than one. We have one coming up Thursday, and then we have uh, a whopping three shows next week. So it'll be very busy. Um, so we're going to close out August kind of in a big way. Um, and if you're listening to this on any of the podcasting platforms, uh, just make sure you hit that subscribe button. I also leave a review because reviews help me to improve the show and improve what we're doing and there's always room for improvement um and then if you miss any of this episode or any of the other 100 episodes because this is 101 uh you can catch any of those shows on deepcutslive.com uh, and like i said and this show will be up on the website hopefully tonight if not tonight then early tomorrow morning so thank you again george for coming on and thank you everyone for listening and watching and uh until next time take care guys <laughs>